Thanks, Pastor Dave. Hi, everybody. It's good to see all of you tonight. Um, we want to wrap up the series that we've been in for the last, uh, well, since the beginning of the year called Engage. The series has been about the need, the need for us to engage in a number of different areas if we want our faith to thrive. So uh, over the last couple of months, we've talked about the need to engage God's word, to engage God in prayer, to engage in love by uh, loving the family, loving each other and the body of Christ, loving our community, and loving the world. We were actually supposed to finish off the series last weekend, but then God brought to mind just one more area that I felt we needed to, to hit on, talk about, uh, that we wanted to uh, hit on today. So this isn't just about another area. It is, but it isn't. It's also about the motivation, the underlying motivation for why we ought to engage in the first place. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So uh, before I begin, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. All right, so let's, uh, if you don't mind joining me, we'll, uh, we'll pray together. Father, thank you so much, God, for this um, insightful series on what it is that you want your people to do. God, it's, it's so easy just to, in this busy life that we have, just show up at church and leave and come back again and leave. But, but you want so much more for us on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, to live out our lives, to live out our, 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 our faith by engaging. And God, my prayer throughout this series has been that every message would not be a usual message. Um, the church would not be uh, business as usual. But God, that you would transform us from the inside out, that you would do a work in us, that we wouldn't be the same because it's not okay for us to be the same old people. God, so one more time as we wrap it up tonight, speak to us. I pray that, I pray that your Holy Spirit would grab a hold of our hearts and not let go until we understand and comprehend what it means to engage. I pray that your word would do the work in our hearts, God. And I pray that your word would convict us and your word would draw us to yourself. That tonight we would make commitments that will last for a lifetime. So thank you, Father. Bless our evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, well, on Monday, uh, this Monday, I had the opportunity uh, to visit the Los Angeles National Cemetery in Westwood. Just decided to take off and uh, tell Cheryl I'm going to the cemetery and I've always wanted to go there. It's in Westwood. I've always wanted to go there. Never had the opportunity to visit. I didn't know what to expect. But, but I just drove there. And uh, here's a photo I took from a bluff overlooking the cemetery. It is an absolutely amazing place. Uh, if you've never been there, I, I want to encourage you to check it out. Take your uh, kids with you. So they understand what this place is about. The Los Angeles National Cemetery was dedicated 130 years ago. There aren't very many things in Los Angeles that are that, are that old, but this is. Dedicated on May the 22nd, 1889, it is one of 147 national cemeteries in the United States of America. It is the final resting place of more than, more than 86,000 men and women who served our nation, get this, in the Civil War the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, 
World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, and the ongoing war against terror in Afghanistan. It's an amazing place. Among the buried are 14 recipients of the Medal of Honor, which is our nation's highest honor, military honor. And also buried there are more than 100 Buffalo soldiers, African-American soldiers who were members of the cavalry during, during the Civil War. It is a place of profound historic significance. And as I made my way slowly around the grounds, the only other person I saw there, I think I was the only person there except this other lady, she's an elderly lady sitting in a lawn chair um, on one of the corners next to a, the grave of her son. And I pulled over and I went and had a warm chat with her. And she told me all about her son. Well, I continued on my drive around these sacred grounds, these truly hallowed grounds. I spotted a headstone um, with an American flag and, and several items propped up against the headstone. And so I decided to stop and take a look to see what, what this was all about. And it was the marker of Staff Sergeant Joseph Francesco Carreri. This is him right here. Sergeant Joseph Francesco Carreri. He was a member of the Green Berets former captain of the USC swim team and a scholastic All-American in high school. Leaned up against his headstone was a stack of laminated photographs and, and an article that he had written about why he joined the Green Berets. And the article that he wrote was, again, laminated to protect it from the rain, and it was titled, Why I Wish to Become a Green Beret. And it began... Uh, with a quote by President John F. Kennedy, who said this, and I'm going to read this for you. You don't have to try to strain to read it, but it began, in the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximal danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. It's President John F. Kennedy. Now, here's what Carreri wrote about why he wanted to join the Green Berets. When President Kennedy spoke these rousing words challenging a generation of Americans to serve their nation in a time of imminent peril, the United States was embroiled in a worldwide defense of man's dignity against the barbarity that was Soviet communism. It is a challenge that continues to inspire a generation far removed from the baby boomers to whom Kennedy was speaking in 1961, but the inherent truth of his rhetoric is undeniable, especially when one reflects upon these horrific events of September the 11th, 2001. I've always possessed a deep love and gratitude to our country, and for as long as I can remember, it has been a dream of mine to serve the people of the United States as a member of their most elite fighting force. My goal through college had been to become a Navy SEAL since I had been a competitive swimmer for 16 years and felt that as much at home in the water as I do in the land, on the land. As I approached my graduation from the University of Southern California, I applied for a commission in the Navy intending to pursue my mission of becoming a part of what I then perceived to be America's foremost fighting force. Unfortunately, a back injury I had sustained while attending USC earned me a permanent medical disqualification from all military service. And for a time, I believed my dream of serving this nation that I love so dearly would never come to fruition. After working as a corporate recruiter for nearly two years and watching the the event in Afghanistan and Iraq unfold from behind the safety of my computer, I decided to appeal my medical disqualification. Using a family friend, I was able to present my case directly to Surgeon, Army Surgeon General 
James Peake, who, after reviewing my case, granted me the waiver I had been seeking for two years. Since the Army gave me the opportunity to serve in the armed forces, I did not attempt to become a SEAL and instead began exploring my options in the Army. A close friend and teammate of mine from USC had joined the Army in May 2003 and encouraged me to do the same. On February the 3rd, 2004, I enlisted to become a part of what I now realize to be the greatest fighting organization in the history of warfare. The Green Berets offer all that I was looking for in a military unit. Their rich history, commitment to excellence, wholly unique mission statement, and placement at the forefront of America's war against fanatical Islam make the Army's special forces the ideal unit for my personality and aspirations. I've been blessed by God to be granted so precious an opportunity to serve the United States in such a glorious endeavor. When my children ask me what I did to avenge the assault of September 11th, I shall be able to look them in the eye without a hint of hesitation and respond that I answered the call of our nation. Instead of asking what America would do for me in this time of great peril, I ask myself what I must do for my country. The Green Berets present me with the only answer to do, to do so profound a question, to so profound a question, and it is my great honor to be part of this hallowed group of men. That's what he wrote. And I wanted to read, it to all, to read the entirety to all of you because it was at his gravesite which meant that it meant something to him. On October the 26th, 2007, Carreri was in the, US, in the Philippines with the U.S. Army Special Forces to train government troops, Philippine government troops there to fight Islamic militants in, some of their, in their own country and some of the, in the southern islands. After a grueling 11-hour scuba training mission at Lake Siet, Crary grabbed a snorkel and flippers and jumped back into the lake to retrieve a USC medallion and a St. Christopher medal that had slipped off of his neck during the exercise. Joe dove in, and he never came back up. He died of what's called um, hypoxic blackout, or more commonly known, shallow water blackout. When a diver faints, for lack of oxygen to the brain. And then the diver drowns. That's how he died. He was only 27 years old. Lake Siet was renamed Lake Kareri by the local villagers who loved Joe, especially the children. They loved Joe. And I wanted to share a story with you because in every way he embodied engagement. He exemplified engagement. And his life illustrates what I wanted to speak to you about today. Now, the situation that led to his engagement in the first place was war. It was war. It was 9-11 that triggered something in him, that he had to do something. He couldn't sit idly by and watch the events of Afghanistan and Iraq unfold while he was safe behind his computer, as he wrote. Church... We face a similar situation today. We are at war. And I don't mean that we are at war against terror or against North Korea or the Russians or the Chinese. According to the Apostle Paul, our war isn't against flesh and blood. Our war isn't against nations and people. Our war is against Ephesians 6.12. Take a look at it. 
Our war is against the rulers, the authorities, and powers of darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness. By the way, if you received a Baywatch when you walked in, there's a sheet in there with all the verses listed there for you. You can look at the app, our South Bay app as well, or look at the screen. But our war, in other words, our war is against the devil. Our war is against the devil and all of his demonic horde. This is no joke. Last week, someone in our church asked me why there was so much anti-Semitism in the world today. She was heartbroken over the intense hatred of Jews, which we've been hearing a lot about lately in the news, and it's been ramping up everywhere, not, in, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. And I explained to her that anti-Semitism is, is as old as time, and the one who is behind it is the devil. The instigator of anti-Semitism <clears throat> is the devil. And what set the devil off was God's declaration in Deuteronomy 7, 6, that the Jews were his chosen people. This is what set the devil off. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was this declaration that the Jews were God's people that set off a firestorm that ignited a firestorm of fury directed at the Jews. And that's what Satan does. He goes after anyone or anything that God loves or God favors. When God declared that the Jews were his chosen people, that's all Satan needed to know. And he's been after them ever since. Same is true with Israel. The moment God announced in Genesis 15, 18, that he was going to give his people their own land, the promised land, the devil has made, it, made every effort to keep the Jews out of their land. And when they got into the land, he's made every effort to get them out of the land. He made every attempt to expel them from the land. In fact, according to a study by the Archaeological Institute of America, which is not a religious organization by any means, in the last 4,000 years, in the last 4,000 years of human history, Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, has been completely destroyed twice. It has been besieged 23 times. It has been attacked 52 times. It has been captured and recaptured 44 times. And the ringleader behind it is the devil. And the devil is still at it. Just last year, this headline appeared in the UK's Express. World War III, Turkey's Erdogan calls for army of Islam to attack Israel on all sides. And the article went on to say that Recep Erdogan, who's the president of Turkey, has called for the formation of a, a 5.2 million man army to wipe out Israel. 5.2 million man army, and the article cited a report in Yeni Shavak, which is a Turkish newspaper, which is a mouthpiece for Erdogan, that said that they would use land, air, and naval bases to attack Israel. 500 tanks, 500 attack helicopters, 100 planes, 50 ships would be mobilized for this onslaught. In other words, it is Armageddon in the making. That's what we're seeing. And who's behind it? It's the devil. Same is true with the church. The moment, the, the moment that Jesus declared, I will build my church, and when the church came to fruition in Acts chapter 2, Satan has made every attempt to take the church down. 
by introducing heresies into the church, by infiltrating it with false teachers, by splitting it, by persecuting it, by watering down its message, by bringing down pastors. The devil has held back nothing to attack the church. And here we are. We are under attack. We are at war. But I often wonder how aware we are, how aware we are that we are at war. I mean, how aware are you of the spiritual battle that is raging around you? How cognizant of are you, child of God, that Satan hates you and he's going to do anything he can to take you down? How aware are you of that? My guess is many people are not that aware. I mean, we just go through life doing our thing. You wake up in the morning, you go to the bathroom, you take a shower, you eat the same old breakfast out of that same old tofu container, <laughs> you make lunch, you get dressed, you go to school, you take the kids to school, you go to work, you hit all this traffic and it frustrates you, you go to work and you eat lunch and you do your homework or you go to all these meetings, you sit at your computer, you look at your phone and then it's time to pick up the kids and then you got to take them to soccer practice and then you start wondering what you're going to make for dinner and it's, then it's time to go home and you hit more traffic, you stop at the market, you, you get home, you, you got to cook, you're grouchy and tired and the house is a mess and you found out that the dog pooped on your carpet the toilet's leaking. You can't find the remote to turn on the news. You've got to do laundry. The kids are crying. You burn dinner, so you order Chinese, but you can't find your car keys to go get the Chinese. Then you realize you're out of gas. When you get home and you finally get some food into your stomach, you bathe the kids, you read to them, you're exhausted. You need a few minutes to veg out, so you fall asleep on the couch watching Tidying Up, and that would put me to sleep too. Or maybe if you have a moment, you go out with the guys and you have a few too many, and then you drive home buzzed, and when you get home, you thank God, you get on your knees, and you thank Jesus that you made it home without getting arrested or hitting somebody. Or maybe your preferred form of self-medication is porn. And then the weekend comes, you're a Christian, you go to church, you drag the kids to church, you drive 10 minutes late, you toss in the obligatory offering, say hello to a few people, leave, grab lunch, they mess up your order, you head to Costco, you go home, do more laundry, Monday morning comes and you do it all over again. That's life. And along the way, somewhere along the way, you might even pick up your Bible and read it. You might even say a prayer or two, and if you're really desperate, you might pray a lot. But who thinks about spiritual warfare during the week? My guess is a lot of what happens to us is because of spiritual warfare. And I think we should all think about it. We are at war. And there's a devil, there's a real devil out there who hates you. And he wants to take you down. And it's not a coincidence that the Apostle Paul wrote these letters that contain warfare language. There's warfare language. 1 Timothy 6.12, let me just give you a few. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. 2 Corinthians 10.4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
1 Timothy 1.18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I mean, you read what Paul had to say, and it is clear. It is abundantly clear. We are at war, and we have a real devil. Your, your enemy is not your neighbor. Your, ne- your enemy is not your ex-spouse. Your enemy is the devil, and he hates you. And we are at war, and we are in a fight, and we are soldiers. Do you know you're a soldier? You're a soldier. And that's why... We ought to engage. You can, you can fill that. We have a couple, three fill-ins here. Fill that in. We engage because we are soldiers. But if you're too busy to engage, if you don't even think about it, and you don't really care, then the devil has already won. He's already won. After I returned home from the cemetery on Monday... I, uh, I started to look online, investigated, wanted to know more about Joe Carreri. I couldn't get, get my mind off of what I saw. 86,000 markers of, of these men and women, real heroes who served our nation, many of whom paid the ultimate price. And then on Thursday, I came across a book that Howard Schultz, I guess he's the Star, Starbucks guy. Starbucks, is that right? Um, he co-wrote with another author. Um, it was titled For Love of Country. It's this book right here. I, I heard about this book. And so I, uh, they had it here at Barnes & Noble, so I went and picked it up. And on the cover it says um, that it's about veterans. This book is about veterans and what they can teach us about citizenship, heroism, and sacrifice. I started reading on Thursday night. I couldn't put it down. Two of the veterans that the authors wrote about were these two Marines right here, Lance Corporal Jordan Harder on the left and Lance Corporal Jonathan Yale on the right. Their story was told by Lieutenant General John Kelly in 2010. It was told to the Semper Fi Society in St. Louis by General John Kelly four days after Kelly lost his own son in Afghanistan. He lost his own son. Then he went to St. Louis and he told them the story about these two men. Now, rather than read his speech to you, powerful speech, I'd like for you to hear how broadcast journalist Sarah Cup shared his speech with her audience. Watch the screen. In November of 2010, then-Lieutenant General John Kelly recounted the heroic acts of two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Harder, who died protecting their comrades from a suicide truck bomber in Ramadi, Iraq in 2008. General Kelly described the last six seconds of their lives. I want to bring you a part of that very powerful speech as a reminder of why it's so crucial that in those final moments we know exactly what happened. What we didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later after I wrote a summary and submitted both Yale and Harder for posthumous Navy crosses, was that one of our security cameras, damaged initially in the blast, recorded some of the suicide attack. It happened exactly as the Iraqis had described it. It took exactly six seconds 
from when the truck entered the alley until it detonated. You can watch the last six seconds of their young lives. Putting myself in their heads, I suppose it took about a second for the two Marines to separately come to the same conclusion about what was going on once the truck came into their view at the far end of the alley. Exactly no time to talk it over or call the sergeant to ask what they should do. Only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant told them to do only a few minutes before. Let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. The two Marines had about five seconds left to live. It took maybe another two seconds for them to present their weapons, take aim, and open up. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi police, some of whom had fired their AKs, now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. They had three seconds left to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines' weapons firing nonstop, the truck's windshield exploding into shards of glass as their rounds take it apart. The recording shows the truck careening to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of the instantaneous violence, Yale and Harder never hesitated. By all reports and by the recording, they never stepped back. They never even started to step aside. They never even shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder-width apart, they leaned into the danger, firing as fast as they could work their weapons. They had only one second left to live. The truck explodes. The camera goes blank. Two young men go to their god. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their families, their country, their flag, or about their lives or their deaths, but more than enough time for two very brave young men to do their duty into eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch all over the world tonight for you. Harder was only 19 years old. Yale was 21. In terms of their age, just a bunch of kids. When that truck started barreling toward them, they could have run. That's what the Iraqi security guards did. They lived, but they didn't run. They stood their ground, and they engaged. And because they did, 50 Marines who were on the base at the time in the building right next to it, they lived. What do they do? Why did they do it? Why did they join the Corps in the first place? Why did Joe Carreri seek to get his medical disqualification overturned so he could engage? I think the title of Schultz's book says it all. For love of country. For love of freedom. For love of America. That's why they engaged. Now, let me tell you about a fourth soldier. His name was Joshua. He was close to 90 years old when Abraham died and Joshua became the leader of Israel. And it was Joshua's responsibility to take the Israelites into the promised land. And he did. 20 years have now passed. Joshua's at the end of his life. He is now about 110 years old. And for one final time, he summons the people of Israel together for one final meeting. 
His words are recorded for us in the final chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. Turn there if you brought your Bible, Joshua 24. One of the verses that's most associated with Joshua is found in this chapter at the end of verse 15. It's probably a verse that you're all familiar with. And it says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You probably heard it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In fact, as you know, we've been doing some remodeling at the house. And when, when um, they tore down a bunch of these walls and started to put up new ones, we decided, my family decided to write a, a verse on the wall. And this was the verse we wrote. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a lot of Bible teachers won't tell you or don't tell you is the context for why Joseph, Joshua said this. So let me give you the context, and then it will make sense. Joshua begins a chapter by recounting the faithfulness and the love of God toward his chosen people, the Jews. Here's what Joshua said, starting in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. And they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from behind the river, beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Sire. To possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, and king, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan. He came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Gergesites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Did you get that? Did you get that? Over and over and over again, even in spite of their own wicked hearts, Joshua spoke of how God took care of his people. 
He saved them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He vanquished their enemies. He promised to give them a home, and he did. He gave them food and water to drink. He guided them by day, and he guided them by night. He protected them. He delivered them. He performed miracles for them. One after the other, he blessed them. And by his actions, he demonstrated two things. First, he demonstrated that he was God. He was not a God made out of hands. He was not a God made out of gold. He was the one true living almighty God. And second, he repeatedly demonstrated by his actions that he loved his people, that he loved his children. And so here in the twilight of his life, Joshua recounted all that God did for his people. Kind of a history lesson. Here's what God did for his people. Why would he say this to them at the end of of his life? He told them this. He reminded them of this, that that it might inspire them, that it might motivate them to engage. See, this wasn't love of country stuff. This was love of God stuff. Love of God. That brings us to verse 14 and 15. Now, therefore, the now, therefore, refers to everything that he just said. Now, therefore, because of all that, because of all that God has done, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the context. Joshua said that because of God's immense love for them, because of all that he did for them over all those hundreds of years, they should serve the Lord. And he said at the end that he and his family were going to do just that. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the context. That's the context. He couldn't help but serve the Lord after after all that God had done for him and after all that God had done for his people. It was the most natural reaction. It was easy peasy. It was simple. You did all this for me, God. I will serve you. Me and my house, we will serve you. So they decided to serve a living God. We see the same template, a very similar template for engagement in the New Testament. See in the New Testament as well. Throughout his epistles or letters, the Apostle Paul identified himself as a servant of Christ. Let me just give you three quick little verses. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He wrote this, right? And so this is his moniker. This is his way of identifying that he wrote this. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. There he is, a servant again. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is just his way of saying, man, this is who I am. I am a servant of Christ. And do you know what Paul's motivation was for being a servant of Christ? It was love for Jesus. It was his love for Jesus. Take a look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through 16. Paul wrote this. He said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, 
but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the worst of all the sinners, he was saying. But again, verse 16, he repeats himself from verse 13, but I receive mercy. And for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, it was because of what Christ did for him that he became a servant. I mean, you look at Paul's history when his name was called Saul. He was, he was a human train wreck. He was a disaster. He was angry. He was a destroyer. He was in your face. He was a hater. He was messed up as you can possibly be. He was lost as lost could be. But what happened? He had an encounter with Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus and he received mercy. And God's grace overflowed to him. He received forgiveness. Jesus washed away all of his sins. He was redeemed. He was adopted into God's family. He was saved from his sins. God gave him peace. He had peace with God. He was reconciled to God. Jesus gave him a second chance. He granted him the gift of eternal life. He was born again. He was made to be a new creation in Christ. And he gave him the Holy Spirit and sealed the Holy Spirit inside of him. That's why Paul engaged. He engaged for for the love of Jesus, for the love of Jesus. And that's a good reason for all of us to engage. We ought to engage for the love of Jesus. You can write that one down, engage for the love of Jesus. If there was ever a, a reason to engage, all these things you've talked, we've talked about over these last couple of months, if there was ever a reason to engage in any of those things, it's because of what Jesus did for you. If there was ever a good reason to get baptized, it's because of what Jesus did for you. A whole bunch of you, for whatever reason, will not get baptized. I don't understand that. It's not about you, but because of what Jesus did for you. That ought to be reason enough. All the things we've talked about, engaging, we had to do it because of what Jesus did for us. And, and can I ask you a favor? Don't engage because you feel pressure. Don't engage because you feel like it's a duty or an obligation. Don't engage because you think I'm going to be watching you to see whether or not you engage or not. Engage for the love of Jesus because of what he's done for you. How did Joshua and Paul engage? They served the Lord. And that's your final point. Engage to serve. You engage by serving. They served the Lord. It, it, was it was natural. It was automatic. Jesus died for me. What's the least I can do? Serve him. That's the least you can do. Serve him. And he gave it a second thought. Us, we... we we always give it a second thought and a third thought and a fourth thought. Someone asks you to do something. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of busy right now. Let me check my schedule. All right. Make, let me make sure it doesn't, what's it, what's it going to take? What's the time commitment involved? Do I, is it going to cost me any money? Well, we're concerned about all these things because we're so busy. When Joe, 
Carreri received a medical disqualification to serve in the armed forces, he was beside himself. He was beside himself because he had to serve. He, he just had to serve. This was his country. He had to give back. He had to do something. Let me ask you something. Is, is that your attitude about the Lord? That you just have to serve him. You just got to give back. You just got to do something because of what he's done for you. I hope it is. I, I hope, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, I, I would hope that we, we would even be willing to lay down our lives in service to Christ because he died for us. You know, I read that, it was reading, it was in Schultz's book, I read that nine, since 9-11, less than 1% of the population of the United States, less than 1% has served in the military. Less than 1% which led Howard Schultz to conclude that most Americans don't have any skin in the game. Wow. It's an interesting way of putting it, right? We don't have any skin in the game. When it comes to church, pollster George Barna found that, on average, only about 18% will serve as a volunteer in their church. About 18%. Average church in America, 18% in the church. They're the only ones who serve. The other 82% don't. 82% don't have any skin in the game. Only 18%. When I read that, I thought, that's not right. That's not right. How can only 18% of Christ followers be engaged in serving the one who died on a cross for their sins? How can that be? That number ought to be 100%. Amen? Amen? That ought to be 100%. I don't know about you. I don't know what the percentage is here, by the way. I, I think it's a lot higher than 80%. We've never calculated it. But it, it shouldn't even be 70 If I said, oh, 75%, I'd say, oh, that's really good. No, no, no. It ought to be 100%. 100% of you ought to be serving the Lord because of what the Lord has done for you. Every one of you. My prayer is that every one of you will serve for the love of Jesus. These guys serve for the love of country. We serve for the love of Jesus. And if you wanna know how to serve, it's a flyer in your Baywatch with a list of some of the places you can serve. But I hope you won't limit it to just that. I hope becoming a servant and being a servant will be a lifestyle and a mindset and an attitude that wherever you go, whatever you do, you got that white towel draped around your arm because you're a servant. I pray that Christ-like servanthood be a way of life for everyone in this church because we're at war. And you're soldiers. For the love of Jesus, serve. Let's pray. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to say one thing. All those things that Christ did for Paul, he did for you. He died on the cross to redeem you, 
to forgive you and to wash away all your sins and to reconcile you and to give you the peace of God, to give you the Holy Spirit, to give you the gift of eternal life, to allow you to be born again, to be a new creation, to save you. I mean, all those things and so much more Christ did by dying on the cross for your sins. And if you're here today, and if you've never acknowledged who he was and what he did, don't leave. Don't leave today without first saying, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for all that you did for me. I owe you my life. And I pray that that would be all of our prayers. That we would all say, Lord, we owe you our lives because of what you did for us. Change me. That I'll not be the same anymore. That I won't leave here same and I go back to the same old routine make me a servant because of what you did for me for the love of Jesus make me a servant show me where and how let it be the way that I live until you come home to take me home Father thank you thank you for all that Jesus did for us we love you so much but it isn't good enough just to say we love you let our profession of love confession of love be proven by our actions God I pray that it would be said of South Bay not for our pride but may you say of South Bay that everyone there, 100%, they appreciated my son. They appreciated the sacrifice because I see it in their service. Let not a one, let not there be a one who doesn't engage. Thank you, Father. Thank you for all that you did for us. We love you with all of our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name.